0: Hello, friends, and welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Courtney Staples. On today's episode, we are joined and have an interview with game designer Sam Sorensen. But before we get into that, I want to remind you that if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, click the link, follow the instructions, and within a reasonable amount of time, We'll be building your world. Of course, if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter over at Let's World Build. You can also come join our Discord and chat with us more directly and more in person. And of course, if you are feeling particularly generous, you can always give us money over on Patreon where you'll get access to, oh, I don't know, good stuff, I guess, like early episodes and patron-only episodes and double the length when you want to submit your own settings. So, with all of that out of the way, let's dive right into the interview. Hello, friends, and we are joined today by game designer Sam Sorensen. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, Sam, for those of us who might not know you very well, why don't you tell us who you are and what your deal is?
1: Um, Yeah, so my name is Sam Sorensen. I am a... Game designer is kind of a strong term, but I guess sort of a game designer, uh, writer, editor, technically I guess a graphic designer, and also I am sort of an academic. So I teach classes on games and I make uh, primarily tabletop role-playing games and occasionally pick up sort of random other like game-related gigs elsewhere, hither and thither, um, sort of your generic, useless post-grad student.
0: <laughs> Look, I'm well in my way of becoming that myself, Sam, oh, great, so great. I very <laughs> much appreciate that. It sounds like you're wearing a lot of hats, though, which is very exciting.
1: Um, that's one word for it. I feel like spinning plates is perhaps more accurate until eventually <laughs> my life just comes crashing down around me, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's fair. That's, that's where the fun starts, you know? Yeah, like exactly. Literally picking up the pieces and yeah, starting yeah. over.
1: Yeah. I look forward to doing the next episode of this podcast from my job at Starbucks.
0: <laughs> is that a lateral move technically i, I mean yeah, yeah yeah totally totally change yeah. your fields
1: you know change your careers it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. i
0: mean they, they offer good health care at least oh yeah, so, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i was just gonna say
2: like I, I had met sam because my wife's friend who is his sister had mentioned someone who plays this game that's similar to what you do but until i talked to you the, the first time at that wedding i was surprised that we had like down the street for me, essentially, in Boston, someone who is as enmeshed in, like, RPGs as you are.
1: Well, it's just a mark of shame, right? I don't
3: want my neighbors knowing
1: what I'm
0: Just hide it. Yeah. Keep it away
3: from everybody. I mean,
0: that's basically what I do in academia. It's like, hey, what are you studying? I'm like, oh, uh, you know, like, narratives. And, uh, no, I, I'm actually very upfront about it. I can't lie about that. I, I study RPGs and stuff like that as an academic thing. So That's cool. I think so. But... Speaking of academia, part of the reason that we have you on, Sam, is for you to tell us your your post-grad failures, right? So Mm -hmm, what was grad school? What did you study? How did you end up in this position to begin with? Tell us your journey,
1: basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, The journey starts when I was about 12 years old and discovered you could be a game designer as a job. Yeah. And then... From there, originally I wanted to study video games, and then I got to undergrad and discovered that that involves a lot of programming and math that I'm not very mm-hmm. good at, and so <laughs> I shifted more into analog games. By the end of undergrad, I was pretty focused on tabletop role-playing games, um, went to grad school to keep studying games, also because my life was collapsing and it was the pandemic and it was horrible. Mm. <laughs> and then through grad school, I I mean, worked on a, f- a fair number of games for various classes, but my like sort of main area of focus was not tabletop role-playing games as well. And so my thesis project ended up being a project called Seas of Sand, which is still not done. <laughs> the writing is done, the layout is done, the art is uh, near-ish done. And now, you know, uh, I guess, God, almost eight months out from graduation, I basically have shifted into a more full-time role for uh, RPGs, as well as teaching classes now instead of taking them. So I, you know, write on my own projects, and I do some art, and I mm-hmm. do a lot of, like, layout and editing gigs for people. So it's a lot of, like, juggling projects and lots of, like, managing InDesign export settings
0: <laughs> and
1: making sure the various printers are happy with the documents I give them. So it's been, you know, while well, I think 12-year-old me would be fairly satisfied to know that I still work in games, it's not exactly what I set out to do, mm-hmm. but it's still sort of broadly within the same wheelhouse.
3: So... You know, you are in grad school, and now you're teaching, and you're running kickstarters, you're designing your own games, and you're working with clients to design their games. How do you balance all of that? It feels well, like mostly a lot.
1: I don't. Yeah. Mostly <laughs> I don't. Um, mostly it's it's just kind of a constant sort of like triage of like, mm-hmm. okay, which of my eight things I need to get done this week are most <laughs> urgent today, right now. Sometimes down to the hour, like this is due at eight p.m. and this is due at midnight. So we do the eight p.m. thing first. Yeah, but you know. Honestly, compared to like, I mean, deep in the pandemic, I guess, like having the reliability of classes is very useful. A, reliable income, and B, just like reliable structure to my week. If I know, okay, on Wednesdays, I have to have lecture done. And so that helps me, you know, figure out my my times a little better. But there definitely are weeks where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, um, four different clients have just decided they all want to call things in on me. And so now I get to be up until midnight for five nights in a row trying to get all my work done. <laughs> I feel like that's the life of any of us who want to work on anything outside of our
2: regular life where we're just obsessed with our projects outside of that eight hour span.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, like those, all those long nights of doing client work do not at all take into account all of the like, quote unquote, voluntary nights of like, I have a project in my head and I need to get it out. I have to get this out before I before I sleep tonight or I'm not going to sleep. So it's just kind of a mess is the short answer.
2: So thinking of, of all of the projects in your catalog, like on your website and all the ones that you're currently working on, like which one are you most excited about? And do you think it's like representative of the type of thing
1: you want to work on? Uh, this is embarrassing because it's, it's so delayed now, but it's probably my project, <laughs> Seas of Sand, which hmm. crowdfunded like a year and a half ago. And in theory, it was supposed to be delivered around this time last year. Um, and then uh, it turns out that writing is hard and art is hard. But <laughs> Seas of Sand, uh, I guess you're all tabletop nerds. So I can, I can okay. talk about this. And I don't have to gussy this up. Seas of Sand is a uh, toolbox setting guide. So it's uh, if you're familiar with like um, veins of the earth or uh-huh. uh, slumbering earthside dunes, or those kinds of projects. Um, so it's a setting guide that is primarily content and generators and tools for the game. So it's got, you know, like a couple dozen monsters and then like some weird other kind of like monster adjacent stereotype entries. Of like there's weird plants and there's sort of like lists of phenomena and stuff. Um, the basic hook of the setting is that it's a, it's like a vast ocean desert of liquid sand. Mm-hmm. And so during the day, classic sort of like, Oh, that's interesting. Ships can sail across it. And then by night, at least on most of the different kinds of sand, the sand cools and hardens and the ships freeze in place But you can walk on the surface. Oh, no, um, very
2: cool. That's like dark water. Do you remember that?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so then from a kind of uh, structural perspective, what the book does is it's lots of generators of like both uh, content and like here are the seven different kinds of sand and here's how to like make a map out of them using die drops and random tables. And then also like a lot of tools for running like a mercantile campaign. Um, one of the things I wanted to do with it was build in like a structure so like... The kind of bread and butter day to day adventuring that you would do in your D campaign is like hunting down the good deals of like, oh, in this city, uh, alchemical supplies are like super cheap right now. So we're going to buy a whole bunch of them and then we're going to like pay a weird street profit to see like what <laughs> is going to be good in the next city. We'll buy some of those. We'll sail for two weeks across these like, you know, this desert ocean of dunes, probably encountering some monsters and weird horrors and, you know, like encounters with God or whatever on the way. And then we get to the next city and we uh, sell off all those alchemicals and make a bunch of money and they'll we'll be our ship and go on to the next one. And so it provides all the tools and generators and content and like lots and lots of tables and randomization elements to help you run those kinds of campaigns for for a GM at a rat table.
0: You had me at mercantile adventures because of (laughs) all the things that I think are super underrated, especially in like fantasy role playing. I think that mercantilism is such an underdeveloped and exciting area for like adventure. You know, like especially when you take it into a historical context. How many people died just to get, you know, this particular spice across a continent or discover something and then make a little bit of extra money? Like, I think there's so much interesting stuff that you can do there. So you, you've already got me sold on that. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, I, I did a lot of reading, um, you know, primarily about like early, I mean, I say early, but like, you know, reading about like the, the Phoenician traders. Right. Mm. And like those kinds of things of, of the book has like a little bit of like a Mediterranean uh, sort of vibe, like but over mm-hmm. to it. But like you know, especially sort of like pre a lot of navigational instruments and mm-hmm. pre strong understandings of like currents and geography. Like the level that mm-hmm. these explorers went of like wooden ships with like thirty people on them, you know, and a lot of these struggled to go more than a hundred miles out of the coast. Like it's it was oh, yeah. it was it was wild.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that like a lot of this stuff because we're we're so used to our contemporary context, you know, like. The idea that we understand how trade winds work and how much further we're able to travel as a result of that. And like you brought up as well, navigation, like how huge a map existing actually is and how important it is for trade and in certain cases, just living. Again, this is why I'm getting so excited about this type of stuff, because like, hell yeah, that's I know it sounds banal, but like, you know, like positioning it in such a way where it turns into an adventure is what I think is really exciting about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's that in combination with, like, the, like, one of the things I went back and forth on with my, my editor guy named Matthew K., super talented, please hire him, uh, <laughs> went back and forth a lot on is, like, the question of, like, the hostility of terrain. Of like, I think one of the, like, sort of undervalued maybe elements of traditional sort of, like, D&D fantasy adventuring media and, like, RPG books both is, like, how dangerous fairly ordinary things are. And how, like, if you lean into the kind of like physical aspects of your setting, like, that is a very ripe ground for building out your adventure. I think that, like, there's a sort of a semi common conception in like RPG books that, like, much of what your adventure needs to stem from is like factions and quests and like constructed elements. But I think that there is a somewhat underrated element, which is like just investing in like the raw kind of physicality of your world, right? If you say, okay, uh, you're climbing a mountain and there's a 1 in 10 chance every day that a, you know, like 1d6 mile radius chunk of this mountain is going to like fly up into the air. Like now that's a really interesting question because like mm-hmm. do we want to find one of these and try and jump off and like fly a glider down? Do we want to avoid these at all costs? Can we like bait these with our monsters? Like can we, what's underneath them? Like all these questions emerge when you start adding in kind of like new physical rules to your setting. And so one of the things I wanted to do with, with Seas of Sand was ensure that there are like different physicalities you encounter with. So like most of the sand follows the rule I described to you of like, okay, it's liquid during the day and then solid at night, but different sands have like different weight limits. And so if you're on like the really thin sand at night, if you're more than, I don't know, a couple hundred pounds, you might like break and sink through. And so if you like have your guy in plate mail, your fighter hits the sand, like crack, like ice underneath you. And then some sand is like, it never solidifies. It's always liquid. And so that's super valuable for merchants, but of course has way more pirates and, and brigands than normal because they know that are merchants sailing through the night. Another sand almost never liquefies. And so the trade caravans who take camels out love it. But if it does liquefy, like now you're in a field of boiling clay and you have huge problems. And all those intersect with like the weather tables that I have and like some of the kind of like monsters interact with physicality in a certain way. But I think that kind of like physical embodiment of saying like, yes, there are concepts behind these and yes, there are factions and yes, there is lore. But like the way this setting manifests itself isn't like changing or at least Playing with significantly like rules of physics you can get to grips with quickly I think is like a very important aspect to building a satisfying and compelling setting.
2: You had talked about um, the book that I was most interested in was your Incaridian. Oh yeah, which is a, a expansion book for West Marches sort of games. And you mentioned um, just now how uh, part of what you're trying to do is give like the regular mundane world uh, sort of life, and that makes me think about you know some of the principles of just OSR design in general. And I, I think it's fair to say, like, your books fit in that realm. Could you tell our listeners, what is the
1: OSR? What does it mean to you? Um, yeah, so the OSR is, stands for uh, either the old school revival or the old school renaissance, depending on who you ask. Historically, it's a movement that started kind of the mid to late aughts, um, right around the end of 3E and the start of 4E, in terms of mainland D&D. That initially started as basically a bunch of people saying, like, we don't like the new edition of D&D meaning like third or even like late second in the 90s, let's go play DD back in the day, like how they did from the kind of late 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so initially that started with a lot of kind of adherence to like OD&D and AD&D 1E and like Moldway Basic or mensker Basic, um, various sort of competing editions from the 70s and 80s. And over the past kind of 10 to 15 years has crystallized into a movement, I say crystallized, has crystallized further, it's still very fluid, into a movement that values... Um, what are the principles? There's a few of these. Uh, sort of, like, more player freedom, so an emphasis on kind of sandbox and open design, and a stronger emphasis on, like, lethality and danger and that, like, you might actually die in the dungeon, Uh increased focus on sort of, like, I guess I'd call it diegetic problem-solving of, rather than saying the challenge in this room is that there's uh, two minotaurs who each have, you know, 128 hit points and resistance to fire damage, instead you say the problem in this room is that there's a big door with a key, and the key is at the bottom of a lake of acid. And you can see it down there, but it's going to fry your rope. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like open-ended, much more kind of like, I hesitate to use the word exploratory, but kind of like free-form problem-solving, combined with a lot of kind of like shifts towards more rules-like play. Uh, You don't get as many class features. There's not as many mechanics. You know, you still have your basic kind of like roll a d20 and make a check, but you let that do a lot more of the work rather than relying on like more complex in-game mechanics and systems. And so the OSR today, you know, in 2023, such as it exists most people would say it kind of doesn't anymore um has splintered a lot but some of it is people playing games from the 80s and writing adventure modules that could work with you know dnd that existed in 1981 some of it is people writing like sort of a uh, contemporary kind of like edgy fantasy that is still pretty identifiably dnd but just kind of like riffs on dnd in, in various ways and then some of it is people writing stuff that is no longer even remotely DD. you know you look at projects like mothership or or troika or even like into the odd and um these are games that embrace those kind of principles of like player freedom weird expression high lethality open-ended design but combine it with sort of traditions outside of DD. mothership is based on like you know uh, 80s horror and travelers so it's like alien or, or event horizon troika is sort of like what if Planescape was British and even weirder, you know? um, (laughs) There are all these other kind of systems that are floating around that are all kind of embracing this, like, open-ended DIY, like, just let players do what they want and let the consequences come what may sort of ethos, but under many different hats and branches and trees and cultures and so on.
2: Now that we all know what the OSR is, and such an eloquent explanation, um, when you were working on your Anchoridian and you were working on you know this this supplement for West Marches sort of games. What were some surprising things you learned as you
1: did the work? Oh, <laughs> um, I mean, so so uh, I guess this is three years ago now. Um, my friend uh, Isabel Kandai and I we wrote a book called Azirians and Zen Caridian of the West Marches, uh, which is a ridiculously named five e book <laughs> for running West Marches games. Um, and really, looking at that book now, I can't really see anything except all the things that I would change. Mm. That was the two of us and a bunch of my other friends. You know, I ran a I ran a big 5th edition D&D Westmarch's game for like two years in undergrad, which was great. It had lots of problems. But basically that book is us sort of trying to like reinvent the OSR without knowing what the OSR is. Of Like we have OSR conversion guidelines in there because in the last six months we kind of like discovered the culture of the OSR and like realized <laughs> we a bunch of things wrong. But like the majority of that book we wrote when we were just like mostly playing D&D, and this was the game that we wanted to play, and we had some big <laughs> ideas of what we were doing, but, like, didn't really know what was happening, and so a lot of the mechanics in there, I look at now and I see them as incredibly clunky and incredibly 5 centric and, like, now I know dozens of more elegant ways to do all of them. But that book was us, sort of, I think, reaching many, if not all, the same conclusions that the OSR kind of had, with only peripheral influence from, kind of, the main line of the culture of the various, sort of, scenes and cultures of the OSR. Uh, and so the Inkeridian now I think if you are in the position we were of you have only ever played Five E or I played Five E and a few other systems or or like a lot of like you know story games and Apocalypse World that kind of thing but are not familiar with, with like OSR thought it's a decent entry point it's okay but I think a lot of the stuff in there now I look at and <laughs> it just feels very Five E brained for lack of a better word
0: <laughs> I'm very curious because I'm I'm a huge fan of a West Marches style of game. Uh, I'm also a big fan of, for example, uh, the Alexandrians' take on West Marches, but also the Perilous Wilds, which is one of my favorite secondary sources for West Marches style games ever. And I use it regardless of you know system that I'm running it in. I, I'm very curious as to what kind of resources you utilize when you're kind of not just putting it together, but uh, maybe after reading them or going through them made you look back at your own Enchiridion and kind of rethink some things?
1: Oh boy, uh, there are a lot of these. Um, so at the time when I was working on that Old West Marches campaign, the majority of the influences we had were like video games. Of I spent a lot of time looking at like how Darkest Dungeon operated in its system mm-hmm. or how Destiny worked or how like Dark Souls levels were designed or how like Breath of the Wild used weenies in interesting ways of, like, you know, we were all video game designers. We were all an undergrad studying video games, and so that was the majority of references that we had. And so a lot of what the project initially started as was, like, trying to convert not necessarily, like, literal systems, but sort of, like, video game thinking into into a tabletop RPG. Nowadays, though, I mean, like with most things in the OSR, it pulls from a... I mean, my home game now pulls from a variety of different, like, random sources and materials and blogs and system mm-hmm. was published in 2010. So, you know, my, one of my current games that I'm running, which we've nicknamed, like, The Mean Game because it's, <laughs> it's it's sort of vicious and cruel. You know, like, that uses the uh, stat blocks and, and some of the saves and the boasting system from Luke Gearing's Wolves on the Coast. It uses a modified version of the inventory rule from Troika. It uses overland travel procedures that hybridize some of the stuff that Into the Odd does with An unreleased book that my friend Jason Ripplinger is working on that involves using like gradient elevations on a map to take exhaustion. It uses the exhaustion slots from Jason Touchy's Grave and Nave Hack. Um, it uses some of the like setting elements from my own book, Low Life. Oh, and then it uses the magic that's a hybrid of Wolves on the Coast as well, uh, combined with Wonder and Wickedness. And Book of Gob, which I have on my shelf but haven't read.
2: Oh, I love that book, Wonders yeah. yeah, and Awakeness. So, like, yeah, it's
1: a it uses weather tables from uh, Daniel Sell's old blog post about using weather flowers and hex maps. And so, like you know, most of my OSR work now is basically like just trawling through blog posts and other random systems, mm-hmm. um, and then looking for the things I want to steal. Oh, and this book also uses the uh, attack value system from White Hack, as adapted by the Vanilla Gate. So there's, you know, I, I could probably come up with another dozen random systems and references <laughs> to pull from and say, like, this is what I'm working on right now. For the West Marches specifically, I guess, you know, if I was going to do it now, if I was going to run a Marches game break right the second, I would run it on hex crawl. Mm-hmm. I would just make hexes that are kind of in the classic style, based on a lot of, like, Luke Geary's work with like Wolves on the Coast and Empire of Texas. And I would use, like, Weather Hex Flowers and I would use, you know, sort of, like, classic OSR encounter tables with probably, like, scaled ones of, like, you know, you say, you're a classic 2D encounter table, you can step them by saying, okay, this one goes up to 16, and then you add plus one if you're carrying fresh meat, if you're within five miles of the vampire castle, or if you have open wounds that are bleeding everywhere, then you add plus one to each of those. And then a 15 is a vampire, and a 14 is a werewolf, and a 13 is a, you know, lesser vampire spawn, and then 2 through 12 are standard d d monsters or something like that.
3: I've got to ask, given that it's called the uh, the Mean Game, how many characters have you slaughtered mercilessly
1: in this game? Oh, I mean, in the Mean Game, I'm trying to think. We've had we only played six or seven sessions, and I actually mm. only one PC has died. Okay. But other than that, uh, one PC lost their arm when they fell off a bird, <laughs> and then they got their fingers eaten by flesh-eating moss. Another oh. one had their ears hacked off by a strange man on a mountain and is choking on wow, wow. Silver Dust and trying to cast a facility <laughs> spell. Another one is invented with a uh, nycteranthropy, like where bat ism um, and is also an 89-year-old man because he got aged by a ghost.
3: Um, <laughs> oh my god.
1: One of them caught trench foot briefly and had to have some <laughs> toes severed. Oh, wow, um, Jesus. Another one might have the black lung, but they don't know. Um, you know, all these problems. Just your average
2: stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, totally, I can totally see fine.
0: why it's called the mean game. Because yeah. death, death is in fact kinder than what you're inflicting upon me. Yeah.
2: Um when you listed all the various things that you've you've stolen from the world to build this mean game, at least in the in the running of it, it, it makes me think of the which you've also talked about, the DIY nature of the OSR as a movement. Um and you're very much involved in the zine scene. Could you tell us what the zine scene is and what does it mean to the OSR in the context of this
1: DIY culture? Yeah, so it's actually like a little bit of like a, a contradiction of, I think, you know, sort of like classic zine culture from the 70s and 80s, um, you know, that kind of grew up in like the punk scene and, you know, a lot of those kinds of other like early sort of like politico cultural movements. Zines were like literally DIY of like people were cutting out letters from magazines and pasting them mm-hmm. on and then running. Mimeographs of those and an underground, you know, press somewhere, you know, on Redondo Beach or whatever. And nowadays, sort of ironically, because primarily of the advent of the digital space, a lot of the um, DIY ethos is primarily cultural of zines now is basically just a printing format of when people talk about an RPG scene, they usually don't mean what they did in the 80s of this is a like, collaboratively sourced, cheaply put together, you know, like whatever kind of product. But instead, it means basically that it is a, it's an RPG product that is less than forty-eight pages and is stapled instead of glued or sewn. Mm. And so, while some zines kind of embrace like the literal sort of like zine aesthetic of cutting and copying stuff from magazines or other sort of like weird collage collaborative work, most RPG zines these days are actually pretty coherent and pretty tight. And so, the DIY ethos manifests more, I think, in like how people approach products and projects from like a sort of design ethos of. You steal from your favorite books and you steal from your favorite uh, 80s movies. And, you know, you started this book, you know, as a series of blog posts. And so, like, on a lot of Big OSR projects, including a few of mine, um, you can, like, go on people's blogs and you can dig through and you can find the anywhere from, like, three to 100 posts that were detailing this project before they eventually, like, hired an editor and, like, a person and put them into a book together. And so, well, like, there is a lot of, like, super cheap sort of together like very diy osr stuff most of it is online but most of it is found on google docs and blog posts and web pages and mm. that kind of thing rather than like literal print media and the print media that does exist mostly although not entirely is actually like relatively speaking for a zine like much higher production quality and much higher production value and is very much like a, a product to be sold that are quite coherent mm-hmm. so zines and rpgs are sort of while very popular are actually really only related to their kind of roots in terms of like the spirit and like the literal physical print format.
3: Yeah. I actually had a chance recently to watch you live streaming your layout of uh, Time After Time. And I'd love to hear more about how you approach the visual design of your RPGs, uh, because each one has such a clear vibe to it that you can pick up at a glance. So what does your process look like there?
1: It varies a little bit. Um, these days, honestly, it's whatever my client hires me to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, at least for zines, my sort of basic approach is of twofold. One of them is that I strive for density of like mothership, which time after time is a zine for. Mm. Um, and like kind of some other ones of I like my zines packed with content. I want things on every page and I want every inch filled and I want as many tables as you can give me. I don't want any dead <laughs> space or dead air. And the other thing is that I uh, try to Basically, pick like only a few colors and only a few sort of like fonts and stick to those as best I can. Mm -hmm. And so, for time after time, that one's a little squirrely because it's like it's a dungeon that's divided into three different parts and it it involves time travel. And so, that actually has like a lot of like the color coding is doing a lot of like work of like whether you're in a yellow or orange or red section really determines like how and what's going on. Mm -hmm. For low life, though, one of my previous zines, I basically just picked like I literally googled like brown, white, blue color palette (laughs) and just, like, scroll through, like, a whole bunch of things on Pinterest or whatever until I found one that I wanted. Like, time after time, the original palette actually came from um, one of those, like, pixel art color picker sites. There's a bunch Mm -hmm. of these, but it's like, oh, people just put together color palettes for your pixel art games. And so I just scrolled through one until I found one that I liked. And then I spent a lot of time, I'm trying to think, for real life, I spent a lot of time looking at, like, old uh, newspapers and, like, Mm. print matter and political posters. And then for time after time, I spent a lot of time looking at, like, retro 70s media there's a fantastic mm-hmm. blog called science 70 that is just like graphic design and imagery from the 70s that is kind of loosely like sci-fi or science theme that's amazing
3: that sounds awesome yeah Oh, it's <laughs> super
1: groovy. it's super rad and so I spent a long time like looking at like 70s media and like how you know and like it's not that influential like mostly it means that I picked Helvetica as my body font and like mm-hmm. and, and ITC Gothic as like the title font but even just in the color palette like I wanted it to look like it's like a wood paneled car from 1974. <laughs> and so like a lot of my at least for zines, with zines, I find that it's it's primarily just picking like one coherent style. You say, okay, this book is supposed to look like it's from the 70s. This book is supposed to look like you buried it in your backyard. Mm-hmm. This book is all just like stark black and white. And and so you pick one of those and you basically just stick to it. For larger projects, especially with stuff like Markboard these days, that is like so varied, I find that oftentimes it's gonna be a little bit overwhelming. And so I basically just default to okay, I'm going to pick a header font and another header font and a body font and just kind of do the standard until someone tells me not to. Um, and usually that's good enough. But for scenes where they're smaller and, and cheaper and easier, you can oftentimes get a little more mm. crazy. Like, oh, what if we did weird sideways elements? Or what if we had crazy flowcharts? Or what if we did like, <laughs> you know, diagram intersections or whatever? Um, so there's lots of ridiculous conversions.
3: Nice. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. As a graphic designer, I definitely value uh, consistency and coherency above yeah. the... yeah the sort of more experimental stuff, but obviously there's a place for that as well. Going along the lines of having design stuff, you've had several
2: Kickstarters. Like, Do you have any uh, tips for aspiring designers who are dealing with
1: Kickstarter? Oh, um, <laughs> this is one where I have actually, I have actually like 180 pretty hard over the past year or so. Mm-hmm. I used to be a pretty staunch proponent of Kickstarter. Where like, you know, it got me working on gigs and it got me paid when I wasn't getting paid and so on. But increasingly, I think, and this is me getting on my soapbox a little bit, so I'm hijacking your, your podcast, but we'll be to talk about politics now. Totally
3: fine. <laughs> um,
1: Kickstarter and crowdfunding, I think, is bad. I think it is the source mm-hmm. of many of the problems in RPGs as as kind of a medium and a scene. Um, there's a few different reasons, but the biggest one is that, like, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to make an indie RPG, you know, if you were on the Forge and you were really excited, basically the way to do it was you, you know, uh, took out a loan and you ordered a thousand print copies and... You sold them as you could to your friends, and you got some of them in stores. And if you were really lucky, Mm. it started to sell. But most of them ended up with several hundred or a couple thousand boxes in a garage somewhere of games that didn't sell. And then, you know, circa 2010, Kickstarter comes along and solves this problem. Because now uh, you don't need to take out a loan. You can just run a Kickstarter, and you know how many copies you need to order. And so you get, you know, 600 backers on your cool new uh, dogs in the vineyard hack or whatever (laughs) in 2010. Um, you know, you get your 600 backers, and then you say, okay, great, um, we're going to order 1,000 copies. And then you send out your 600 to your backers, and then you send out, you know, 50 of those to the game shops that are prepare your calls, and then you have 350 sitting in your garage. But since your Kickstarter put you in the black, you no longer are in debt, and thus the, the urge is much, you know, there's much less urgency. Or you use DriveThru, and you just sell them drive DriveThru. But what that has created between drive through and this kind of, like, Kickstarter loop, it means that there are people who are successful, but their games never end up on shelves. And it works for a few people. You look at, like, Kevin Crawford, uh, stars of that number, Kevin Crawford, and he just sells everything on drive-thru. And I think that works fine for him, and he's clearly making enough money, and he's very successful. But I think for a lot of kind of, like, full-time or full-time-ish sort of indie RPG designers, Kickstarter is a real trap, because it feels like it's the only way to make any money, and thus you just keep running Kickstarters, Kickstarter after Kickstarter of, you know, month after month or year after year. And most of the actually pretty successful indie RPG designers still don't have their books in stores. If you go to your local game shop, they'll have a few. You know, Possum Creek is doing some work here. J Dragon's Outfit and uh, Mothership's Tuesday Night Games. Sean McCoy and those guys are doing some good work. And there are a few people who are pushing this. But, you know, up until three to five years ago, and arguably even still now, there is like a real dearth of small third-party publishers. And so what that means is that, like, Kickstarter has started to become the only way to get published. If you Mm. need you know, if you need money, the only place you can go is Kickstarter. And what that means is that it's creating this weird, self-fulfilling prophecy of, because everyone does Kickstarters, there are no third-party publishers because everyone just runs mm-hmm. a Kickstarter. And yep. because there are no third-party publishers, there's no other way to get published. And because there are no, mm-hmm. there's no way to get published, it means you're back on Kickstarter. And at no point do indie RPGs end up in stores. And at no point is anyone building any infrastructure. Like, you know, friendly local gaming stores, they can call up Watsi, or even, like, you know, or or Catalyst or whoever and say, like, hi, um, every two weeks we'd like to order another 50 copies of a player's handbook or whatever, or we'd like to order 200 copies of your new release. And there are just no networks doing that in Indie. Like, Exalted Funeral is, was doing some of that a little bit in places. There are a few other places, um, you know, a few other outfits, uh, you know, like Spear Witch or Rook's Press or um, Soul Muppet or or, uh, Space Penguin or a few others that are trying to do this, but, like, the lack of infrastructure over the past 10 years, in large part because of Kickstarter and crowdfunding, has meant that while indie RPGs are more popular than ever, they have almost no discoverability unless you were already like online in the right mm-hmm. circles. Of you walk into a game shop and you can't see these because Kickstarter has created this loop where rather than having writers and publishers and you know, distributors and, and designers and so on in like an actual ecosystem, instead you have 10,000 people who run Kickstarters and do everything themselves, because there's no path forward to get out of Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And so you have people, I mean, like me previously, who were like, I don't really want to be doing publishing and distribution. I want to be making games. And I would love to give some chunk of my profits to a publisher who will do a distribution and fulfillment for me. But, you know, five years ago, when I started this, I I didn't know any of that. And so I was just, I was literally like shipping things out of my basement. There's still copies sitting in my parents' basement of like books that I (laughs) didn't sell, because I figured, oh, I'll order a few extra on my print run and I just like haven't moved them because trying to contact random indie game shops is a giant pain in the ass. And so like it, Kickstarter has created this weird system where we're mimicking the design, or the, not design, but the, the business practices of 20 years ago, like pre-internet mm-hmm. sales practices, because everyone just keeps running crowdfunding campaigns and selling only enough copies. And so like for lots of indie RPGs, if you want a print copy and you miss the Kickstarter and they're not on drive-thru, it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Like there are... There are many storefronts that are trying, right? There are many indie storefronts that are trying their best to sell indie RPGs and small-time publishers. But for so many games, because there is none of this infrastructure, because Kickstarter has created this, this loop, Kickstarter is the only place to get games, which is a misuse of the platform. It totally shafts over people who are actually trying to get crowdfunding because there's a half-billion-dollar licensed RPG product every six weeks on Kickstarter. And it, it's just created this bizarre, like weird, malnourished self fulfilling prophecy of an ecosystem where we sell games that has caused, I don't know how much damage and problems, but it means that I encourage (laughs) all you new designers, email me or hit me up on Twitter and I will point you to publishers, to small-time publishers who can give you 500 bucks or a thousand dollars for an art budget. So you can can hire somebody to make your cover and a layout designer, Um, and then we'll publish your games. And they'll take some of your profits in the long run, but it also means you don't have to have copies in your basement. It means you don't need to run crowdfunding. You don't need to deal with backers. And it helps build this infrastructure that we are so lacking. So Fox concluded.
2: Oh no, I mean what you're saying is fantastic because it almost sounds like we've recreated with Kickstarter almost a digital um distributor in the sense that the old, you know, old guard print publishing was strangle held by physical yeah. distributors. And here we have this digital one that's now mm-hmm. strangling us in the same yeah. way. Taking yeah. its thirty percent, twenty
1: percent cut, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, I mean like people are like, "Oh, I don't have money for a marketing budget." And like my brother in Christ, Kickstarter's 10% is your marketing budget. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> mm.
0: How yeah. much of that would you also have to blame for like the move to digital, right? Because uh, I'm thinking of when when D&D 5E came out, right? There's the whole Dungeon Masters Guild. That is like a caged off kind of like, "Hey, you want to play in the playground, we'll give you this opportunity." And that I see as a way to kill off third party presses as well, is to give that kind of freedom, but also on such a short leash that they're not allowed to do that. But then there's also this massive movement towards PDFs, towards uh, digital distribution. And, And I see that as another huge aspect of the lack of physicality, lack of actually having books, because some of my favorite books that I've read have been just PDF files. And then maybe you know, like I'll go out and buy a physical copy. Like, for example, I just picked up a copy of Monty Cook's Tolis for the first time because it's like, hey, I have a budget and I'm just going to go grab a $150 physical book. How much does that have to play into it as well? That's not just Kickstarter, but like it's it's an industry problem, not just a Kickstarter specific thing. Um, So I think there's a few
1: different things in there. I think the, the DMs Guild that Watsi runs is pretty like pernicious of like it's pretty cool of like they take half your they take half your profits oh wow but at the same time like i got started with the dance guild my first like two or three projects were all in the dance guild and like that was how i dipped my toes into rpg publishing and i made 200 bucks which you know kept me in pizza money in undergrad and like that was my first baby step into like trying to make money on something i published so i think that while it is bad it certainly could be worse and i also am kind of inclined to say that like i think. Just because it gets people into, like, it presents a relatively safe way of getting into publishing a little bit. I'm kind of still mildly in favor it. drive through I think, has caused some problems in the same vein of, like, because everybody's just printing on drive through, like, it means that you aren't printing in stores. But I also mm-hmm. think the drive through is fantastic because it's such a safe way. If you have literally a budget of $200, and so you're going to hire, you're going to get, you know, two pieces of black and white art and then do layout yourself in PowerPoint and then just throw together in a PDF and hope to God it works, like, Drive-thru is amazing because you have to pay the 30 bucks to get yourself a proof copy and then they will do everything else for you. And so I think the drive-thru mm-hmm. is like actually very good. As for digital things, like I agree that the medium has shifted towards PDF and you certainly see like PDF-centric design more than you would 10 years ago. You know, like there are adventures now that are structured so you can click around and links through their page links and stuff like that that like don't work as well in print. But I think that, I think that PDFs alone actually are still mostly beneficial. Um, I think it means that, Mm -hmm. you know, like lots of the money I make on RPGs comes from PDF sales. And because there is no overhead for me, I don't have to print them. I don't have to ship them. I don't have to do anything. I really appreciate that. Lots of my first products started as just PDFs. I still make things that are just PDFs. And I think that like the shift to digital should have been a a bigger revolution than it was. I mean, like the Forge capitalized on it of, you know, you go read Nuking the Apple Cart and while Ron Edwards Says lots of things I disagree with. I think that and the Apple Card is still broadly correct that like having digital storefronts that you can set up yourself and run yourself is very beneficial. But I think the digital, like, while there's an argument that oh, PDF sales are cannibalizing your print copies of like some chunk of people are gonna be buying PDFs instead of buying hardbacks. I think that the amount of eyes you get from PDFs and the amount of people who would buy a PDF and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to get really political, the number of people who pirate your PDF and then like your game so much they buy it anyway, <laughs> like, because that's a real market in RPGs, yeah, yeah. I-, I think outweighs all potential downsides of digital distribution.
0: Yeah, I, about the pirating, uh, I have to say that that is essentially how I will test out a book and then go yeah. buy a physical copy myself. Yeah. Like, obviously... Like, is it the most ethical way of doing things? No, you should always support somebody, but l- like, especially small, small indie presses and stuff like that. But realistically, right, I'm gonna support that book if I like it. But I also want to make sure that I'm not wasting my goddamn money by reading through something and being like, oh no, this is trash. I'm never going to mm-hmm. use this.
1: You know? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, as uh, Gabe Newell, I think it was, says, like, piracy is a service problem, and like the way that mm-hmm. people have gotten around this is by saying. Here is like an artless version of half my book I'm giving away for free on my itch page because it's way easier to go to itch, right. look at the table of contents of the first 30 pages of a 100 page book, and be like, oh, this is good, than it is yeah. to find some sketch ass mm-hmm. PDF off of like
0: <laughs> TG or somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so it's essentially like. Right? Um... Oh, God, we all have opinions on it. <laughs> oh, <again, laughs> <Dragon laughs>
3: um, no, it's essentially like going to a bookstore and flipping through a book before you decide to buy it. Yeah, I don't exactly. think there's there's yeah. an issue with, you know trying something out, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you do actually buy it if you like it and use it. Yeah, yeah. my friends
1: joke that, you know, uh, I'm like giving you my PDF to open. So I'll send you a PDF and then I'll delete it off my computer. And then when you're done, you send it back to me. Once you're finished looking <laughs> through it. And then you delete it off your computer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, There's also a level to that of, I, I've seen various models. There is the pay what you want model, which is great. There's also the, hey, here's the standard version that's just free here's the, I know that I think stars without numbers does this, or maybe mm-hmm. it's travel. It's kind of whole thing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Where it's like, here's the basic raw ass text file. And then here's one that's been gussied up and has some art and some nice layouts mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Right. And obviously there's some other bits and pieces missing as well, but that whole process, like, I feel like that's another way that like you you're absolutely right by quoting Gabe Newell there, right? Like it's a service problem. Like, yeah, we don't want to spend $30 on a PDF and then you open it up and it's not at all what you wanted. Right. Like, yeah. And Courtney, you're also right to say, yeah, it's like flipping open a book in the store before you read it. And that's definitely mm-hmm. something that we miss or lose in that lack of physical space, which I think kind of adds to your point previously about the lack of indie games in the physical space and how that hurts the industry overall.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, I agree entirely, honestly. Um, I think that, you know, like PDF reviews are an extremely valuable tool. And that like, you know, I mean, and the contrast to this, I guess, is that like while digitalization has maybe done some damage, like the amount of interesting influential texts I find that exists only online are huge. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like on piracy, the thing about it is that like, if at least, I mean, I'm sure there are dedicated pirates, but like, if your book is high quality, piracy is free marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. check out this cool PDF that I got of this game that I love. I'm gonna send it to you. Like that will get you more eyeballs. That will get more people playing and talking and buying your game than it would otherwise. Yeah, I mean the the books that I've downloaded to look at
2: this, to understand like what is the content in this. The ones that I really loved and admired, I ended up ordering. You yeah, know, and sometimes exactly. I would go out and order like the print-on-demand version that they have mm-hmm. that available if they didn't have a physical book, which was more expensive typically than if it were printed.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm the same way, Daniel. Like my bookshelf is littered with previous PDFs that I had pirated. Right? <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, if a lot of us are looking for something valuable and like Courtney was saying, I think like going to the, we can't go to a bookshelf and have that serendipity <laughs> of discovery. So in a sense, like kind of flipping through it, we're not even using it for a game. We really want to understand what is this? Is it worthwhile? And then mm-hmm. if, once it is, I'm like, okay, either I want, I want the fully featured, you know, not, russian copy of this this pdf Mm -hmm. (laughs) or i want it in my hands physically how can i do that and then i'll pay the money you know
0: yeah it's it's interesting because what we're kind of talking about without actually talking about it is the decentralization of the kind of edifice of rpgs right uh like sam you brought up the the game store as kind of like the nexus for gaming and like i think with digital that just is not true anymore To a certain extent, like I think that those places still exist and are valuable, but like overall, like you have so many more options about like, who am I going to go and trust and get this product or about product reviews or, you know, it's, it's just an interesting kind of look into how the system has changed so much.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's, that's true to some extent of certainly for indie RPGs, the like marketing nexus has moved kind of counter argument that like, as I would present is that game shops are still great. I love game shops and like, oh, yeah, the benefits of them are not, I think purely like marketing. Like the reason I go to my game shop most weeks is not because I am super curious to browse a a V shelf that changes once every two months. It's because I have friends there that I run, run and play games with. It's because there are people mm-hmm. there that I know who work at the store. It's because people come in with their homemade projects they're working on. You know, I've helped people be like, Oh, like, I've had people who I've met at the game shop, you know, message me on Discord to be like, hey, Sam, I'm working on a one shot. Like, can you look through this? Or like, do you have any suggestions? Like, it's a way to build community and friendships and like things beyond just marketing yeah. edifices in a real way.
0: Oh, th- that's absolutely what I was getting at. Like, Because you you mentioned it in your response that like Discord is becoming a place where it's like. That's where indie RPG people go. That's where you're going to meet bigger communities. But also, like like I was saying, and like you said as well, the game store is a place for community. It's where you can meet people. It's where you yeah. go to hang out, right? Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, like,
1: I say this as a person, as like the, in theory, mod of the Z-Month Discord. Like, it's... People... One of the criticisms that people have levied against indie RPGs, um, Marcia, uh, uh, Traverse Fantasy, Marcia, has talked about this in detail. Like, one of the major criticisms that I only disagree with sometimes is that, like, the principal social activity of the indie RPG scene as it exists, at least there are model scenes, but as it largely exists on, like, Twitter and itch and Discord servers is marketing to each other. Like, the mode of participation mm. in indie RPGs online that, like, everyone kind of points you to is, like, you make a product to sell. And that's not true all the time. Obviously, people still do games for free. Obviously, still, like, people are working on cool collaborative things. That's not true everywhere. But, like, increasingly, I think that there is this push, especially, like, I think because of Itch. Because Itch is both distribution platform for free products and storefront. There is this weird shift towards, like, if you want to be really involved in the scene, like, in the same way that people who play D&D, players move to become GMs, and then GMs go on to make their own adventures. If you're interested in, like, weird niche Indie itch games. You start as a player, and then you start making your own hacks, and that's two steps from now. Like you're trying to run your own little weird, like mom and pop online shop selling your, you know, breathless uh, hacks or, or outside belonging <laughs> hacks,
0: which I like, guess fine artisanal RPG shop. Yeah, you know, I mean, like yeah. I
1: make artisanal RPGs. Like <laughs> more power to all those people. Yeah.
0: But I think that like lots of people,
1: like the culture is to want is toward one of you got to sell your shit and like. That, I think, has some weird underlying toxic effects. Like, on this Discord, on the Z-Month Discord, which, granted, Z-Month is promotional. Z-Month is marketing. But even so, you know, we have a half dozen channels working on games, and the one that consistently gets the most traffic is the self-promo channel. People can post their tweets and their links and their Kickstarters and all these things because maybe, kind of, sort of, we have, like, shifted towards a model where all we do is sell to each other. That's not true everywhere. There are some Discord servers I love, and there are some Twitter discussions I love on rare days. But like <laughs> there is, I think, a worrisome, slightly insidious shift towards, you know, the capitalist
0: mindset in our hobbies. I'm glad that someone who wasn't us brought up the problem that is capitalism every <laughs> single goddamn time. Yeah. <laughs> because again, like you said the shift to digital should have been a bigger revolution. And I genuinely blame capitalism for a a big reason of why that is right. Because that need, right. Because we should, we should not be working 40 to 80 hours per person per week anymore. Right. Like we have the means of production to not do that. And then when we, okay, we're, I'm not going to go off on this anymore (laughs) because uh, we do, have to try as much as I would love to sit here and chat with you for another hour. Oh yeah, we have a jam to get to, oh. and by God, we're going to get to it. So, okay. Sam, yes, you might not be familiar with how the jam works. Essentially, we're going to roll some dice. Okay. You're going to help us make a scenario based on what those die rolls say, and then we basically create collaboratively on the fly. Are you ready for this? Of course you're not. No one is ever ready. That's (laughs) what makes it fun. Great. Okay. So, first things first. We have to roll for the genre that we're going to be focusing on.
1: Okay. And our genre. Go ahead. I was going to say, do you need me to roll my dice? I've got dice sitting next to me
0: on my desk. You know what? Absolutely. No one has ever asked this before. (laughs) Yeah. Sam, go ahead and roll a d20 for me, please. And I will tell you the result.
1: Great. I got a nine.
0: That is a gothic horror setting, Sam. Okay, okay. All right. And next, I need you to roll another D20 for the theme.
1: Great. That's an 18.
0: An 18. Oh, Sam. So we've got a gothic horror uh, genre setting, and the theme is pain. Okay. And roll one more D20 for me, Sam. Uh, That is an 11. An 11. So the first thing that we're going to be focusing on is someone really important to the setting that almost no one knows about. So, just to recap, our genre, gothic horror. Our theme is pain, and the first thing we're focusing on is someone really important to the setting that almost no one knows about. So, Sam, as our guest, you get to start us off. What are your initial thoughts? Where do you want to start us? Um, I guess
1: <laughs> in the spirit of just being on a podcast and not having a plan. We'll just jump
3: straight into this. Normally I
1: would ask a bunch of questions of like, what's our structure? What's our tone? Blah, 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 blah. Let's just go straight into it though. Um, you can just
0: set that tone. Okay, okay, that's yeah, 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 the okay, thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, then in that case, if our theme is pain and our setting has got the core and we need something important that no one knows about, this is like the, this is the the queen's living body bag, right? We have queen, mm. totally not Victoria who sits on her throne, wired into it day and night. And beneath the throne, there is uh, her three living children who sit there, you know, three secret children she had, who sit there with with Mad Max blood bags, (laughs) hooked up to their veins, dwelling in darkness and seeing only the select waiters and butlers who descend them to feed them. And from their bloodstream uh, is channeled upwards into the throne where the queen sits. She knows this, of course, and it torments her Mm -hmm. just as it torments her children. And her children yearn for freedom, but have never known life outside the palace. And so there is this paradigm of each needs the other to survive. Were the queen to be dethroned, her children would doubtless be executed. But were her children to abandon her from their blood bag post, doubtless the queen would die.
0: Sam, wow. I see that you've been talking Lovely. to Courtney quite a bit here. Um, <laughs> Thematically, Courtney is into two things. Child murder and blood sacrifice. <laughs> <Absolutely>. And clearly, <laughs> we've got both of those here as a setup. But I do love mm. where we're going with this. Yeah, and I think if
1: we're, I mean, gothic horror, like, isn't the, don't the think the literary scholars say that, like, the principal, like, feature of gothic horror is that it's the past coming back to haunt you? Am I making mm. this up? I can certainly see that as being mm. one of its it principles.
3: sounds like it makes sense, yeah. I, I feel
1: like I have heard this. I also just think it's a good hook. So, like,
0: what if we say... Mm-hmm. That, that sounds like a good hook. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, definitely. What, if,
1: what if we say that, uh, you know, um, each of these three children who sustains their queen, the mother, they each made some decisions that brought them back. All three were released into the world, but mm-hmm. the offer that they are always welcome to return, should they be willing to offer up their mm-hmm. blood. And then each made some mistake that now haunts them yet in their palace, mm-hmm. despite their seclusion. So they're outside of the court,
2: and to some degree, they're kind of out on the outskirts of it. Is what we're saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. And they use—I mean, I, uh, in my head, this is like each of these is a prodigal, is a prodigal child, right? Each <laughs> goes out into the world, being like, "I'm not going to be like my sibling with the blood bags. I'm going to do something different." And <laughs> um, then, and then, something horrible happens to them, probably involving some quantity of pain. We probably focus on one for each of them. You know, pain of the eyes, pain of the hands, pain of the soul.
0: Well, why don't why don't we do this? Why don't we have the so so if they all left and came back, then it's, it's easy to posit that they believe that they deserve to be there, right? Yeah. So that yeah. they are deserving of this pain, that they are deserving of this suffering. So yeah. maybe that's what we can focus on is kind of the stories that bring them back. Sure. It
2: hmm. would be interesting if they each had a different intention to – Um, Like Mm -hmm. maybe one wants to be returned the way they were. One wants to unseat Mm -hmm. the queen and one wants to unseat the throne itself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now I don't normally do this, but I would, because we're talking about, you know, Victorian style queens here. I do want to bring in just a little bit of incest because I feel like it's important <laughs> for <laughs> your royalty. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? Like, yeah, so, yeah. Definitely. It so is a sick and twisted forbidden love story that I think yes. is simmering uh, underneath this whole mm, thing. Um, yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. One of these, one of these children offers blood to another as a way to keep them alive. Or maybe offers something else. <laughs> mm. Oh my! I
3: guess yeah. If they're stuck down there, just the three of them all the time. Ugh. But also,
1: there is there there. Uh, I want a cool name for like the secret the secret group of people in the palace. Whose job it is to keep the three bloodbag children alive. Of like, yes, they're the they're the select office or something, right? And so maybe some mm. of these select officers also may have some kind of twists with them. You know, there is something. Mm. Um, oh yeah, my horror friends say something very erotic about being like the one to day in and day out hook someone into various machines to draw a life force out of
0: them oh it's a power dynamic for sure right mechanistic vampirism Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and obviously we don't want to call them like the blood maidens because like Mm -hmm. that's a bit too on the nose right a bit obvious yeah i mean i think they have names right of course
1: they're they're uh horace and weightly and yeah. Annabelle or something, like, Yeah, yeah. You know, Cecilia.
0: You forgot Nigel, but that's... Oh, true, I yes, know. Nigel, how could I? Everyone forgets Nigel. Oh. I, yeah. I
2: wonder, too, if they have a certain degree of um, political power, despite being mm. these um, blood nurses, um, in the sense that yeah. they're connected. I mean, if the select office must have yeah. some power.
3: They must oh, be yeah. connected
2: to the other families that are, you know, adjacent to the queen.
3: And we were talking about trysts, too, so, like, Initially, you know, you'd probably think like, oh, these, the kids who are, well, not kids anymore, but the adult children who are down there serving as blood bags are probably fully the victims, but maybe they are using sex and and other means to sort of sway the select office to do their bidding.
1: Yeah. And if we're going with the angle that they returned from, you know, they weren't, they aren't mandated to be here and be blood bags Maybe there's pressure on them, but they did have the option to leave, and yet they returned anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of political ambitions or personal ambitions. That certainly mm-hmm. opens up new fields as well.
0: So, mm-hmm. so these children aren't recognized as full-blooded children, correct? Like of the queen, right? That's kind Ooh. of what we're going with. Mm-hmm. Or, or they're all believed to be dead or something,
1: right? If they were written off. Ooh. Oh, they went out into the world, and one of them went to America, and one of them went to Australia, and one of them died in the wars. But all, actually, all three returned. Mm-hmm. yeah
2: mm-hmm. I think that makes sense because to me, it seems that the story is centering upon a their return and b um, their individual ambitions.
0: I, I was uh, the reason I asked this is because I imagine that the people who are like handling them are people who still know and are trusted with the knowledge that they have come back. And who better to trust someone with that knowledge than their own father to do it, right? Mm,
1: of
2: course. Prince mm, yeah. Consort, head of the select
0: office. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Love it.
0: Which is mm. equally horrifying and gruesome and, and, again, brings in some of that gross, gross incest that I was talking about previously.
1: Yeah. So then if, if our theme is pain, who isn't in pain? Who's the one person yeah. in the story who, who gets to be the, the, the other side of
0: the coin? the queen clearly no no the, the queen feels guilty she feels guilty about it i think she's a psychopath well how old is the
3: queen if she requires mm-hmm. 200 this 200 like... years oh old. she's been
1: on the throne for 100 exactly yeah, yeah. And,
3: you know the sun never
2: sets on her empire yeah right. she benefits from this endless supply of embryonic fluid and blood <laughs> she's fat Where's
1: on that? her Where did food come from dude? <laughs> we you don't know that? if she's
2: a, know like, a massive- <laughs> we don't know that she's blending embryos on top of this she very well could be i think she's fat and happy in rich society and the okay. other half of the story yep. is this beautiful existence she has with all these people despite the horror beneath her
0: literally i think that the prince consort is actually the one who actually enjoys this because he gets the the pleasure of knowing of keeping people under his thumb Like there is a power and a pleasure that they take. And I think it's far more interesting if the queen herself wants to die and wants this Mm. end to end for everyone. There is a tragedy to that figure. And it is it, it also adds a thing of like there is a theme of like royal pressure, right? Like there is an there is an expectation of royalty and, you know, like no one else can handle that but her. At least that's what everyone else has been telling her. And that's why she continues to live this tortured existence.
2: I think you could have both of those if you want her to actually secretly be guilty. Um, but I do think the idea of there being the front face of this world seemingly is clean and in order. But having underneath it a horrible throne of blood uh, mm-hmm. would work with that.
0: Hey, that's thematically appropriate with imperialism, yeah. Daniel. <laughs> and it's
1: really like It could be that, you know... Over the long arc of our queen's, you know, centuries-long reign, she started out being that this was great. And then as successive generations of her children were sent down into the oubliettes beneath by the select office, the guilt begins to mount and grow mm-hmm. as her decisions mm-hmm. of the past come back yeah. on her. Sometimes literally.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. This all sounds amazing. This sounds so exciting. And now we get a chance to shake things up by adding a random twist. So... This time, Sam, we can't have you roll a die because that kind of spoils the whole deal. But for me, let's see what I get. Oh, our twist this time is now make it strange. No stranger than that. Hmm. I feel like we've already gotten some strangeness. So how do we turn this into something even more bizarre? Um.
1: I mean, I've been playing Bloodborne
0: recently, so my Mm knee-jerk is saying Cosmic Horror! (laughs) Actually, (laughs) it's the blood of the
1: old world. It's visions and stuff, but that feels a little played out, mainly by Bloodborne.
0: Yeah, what What isn't played out is Bloodborne, because that game is a fucking masterpiece. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Bloodborne is never played out,
1: but I feel like all of us trying to imitate Bloodborne are played out.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, that's fair. (laughs) However, I do want to point... You mentioned something a million years ago, and I want to bring it back, but the, the level design in Bloodborne series and dark soul series in general people should study that if you're looking for good dungeon map design in general because the way that those worlds come together is so fantastic okay i got it out of the way let's go back to the screen sorry i apologize
3: <laughs> um so my thought is that so the queen's children are rejuvenating her with their blood but what is happening to their age are they de-aging or are they rapidly aging because of this could we oh. play with that in some way
1: I mean, I was just thinking there might be multiple generations of children, right? The mm-hmm. the, the three blood bearers or whatever get swapped in and out, right? As time oh, goes on, yeah. and so it certainly could be that you know one of them is ancient, one of them is very young, or one of them looks ancient but is actually young. One of them mm-hmm. looks very young but is actually ancient. One fluctuates based on the day, you know.
0: Okay, mm. I keep, I hate to keep harping on this, but maybe the the incest is necessary for this kind of weird chain to continue on. Yeah. And that's yeah. gross <laughs> and awful, but also like maybe that's the way that they see this as like we need the purest blood possible and it's yeah. like kind of enforced that way, right? Yeah. yeah. I hate that so much. Oh. The select office is only made of those who are of the purest finest blood. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Oh, and then and then what you do at that point, right, is that you have the one person who is just almost pure enough, but isn't, and so that's the villain because they're so mm. angry and spiteful over the fact that they're overlooked, but they want the queen's love. They know all the secrets, but they want her love more than anything, but they're deemed not pure enough, right? Maybe that's,
1: maybe that's the strange twist. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's that oh. the queen's lifeblood instills, you know call it chemical imbalance or religious ecstasy, but a genuine loving devotion. You Ooh, say, oh, when your blood that. mingles the queens, you love her and you can't escape it. All of them are going to a yeah. because they have to sustain their queen.
0: Ooh, I love that. That's wow. incredible. Yeah, yeah I mean, absolutely. No. Like, there's a euphoria that they get. So, So it's like, it's almost as though they tried to kick the habit of the queen. They tried to go out and live their own lives, but then they mm. couldn't because that intoxicating feeling was too much.
1: And monsters draining your blood, but also super hot, is a recurring theme in Gothic
0: the <laughs> Also true.
1: Yeah, yeah, very, very true. true. Yeah.
0: I, I'm also thinking of like, there's got to be some like mosquito element to this, right? Because I played Darkest Dungeon. I know what's up. Yeah, yeah, yeah you do. <laughs> Hell yeah! Uh, but like, no, with like the blood intermingling, right? Because when a when a mosquito stabs you with its proboscis it's not just about it sucking your blood there is a mingling of the blood that happens yeah that's yeah, where malaria comes mm-hmm. from exactly exactly so i i think that that's that is another element that we can kind of introduce into this where it's like that is essentially what's happening where it's not purely a drain but like there's some intermingling that's happening within this process and that's where the intoxication the euphoria comes mm-hmm. from it's a literal drug within her system with her blood there's an
1: opportunity for um a blood magic system there as well
0: yeah
1: yeah you also could lean into this from a more kind of like um you could imagine like a like a religious angle to it of the various people who come to the queen's throne to pay their respects the most favorite of them are gifted by the select office a single thimble Mm -hmm. of the queen's blood Uh, which then they you know smoke or handle or drink or inject to Mm -hmm. achieve some kind of religious frenzy and ecstasy Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to add an erotic element to it, you could also just, like, have her prick her finger and then the, mm. the person, like, is, like, suckling on the mm. blood. Mm. Of- Very oh, saucy. like, like yeah. the
3: kissing of the back of the hand. Is exactly. She, like, makes an incision and they kind yep. of like, suck the blood oh. out of it. Yeah. Exactly
0: right. Exactly. And, and all you need is a drop, right? And, oh, is that the way that she maintains power by keeping all of these yeah. nobles as sort yep. of, like, addicts to her yep. kind of blood. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah,
1: it's a situation. Though. All the noble nobility yeah. is centralized around these weird blood rituals, and so they can't actually govern.
0: And that's why the realm is far yeah.
1: apart beyond. Maintained solely by the queen's own hands.
0: Oh, that sounds
1: so
2: good. I- I'm
3: wondering, too, then, if that um, going back to like the bloodborne illness that we were talking about before, if that is the way to cause the downfall is literally by introducing some sort of illness that is transmitted by blood that would completely obliterate the noble class because of how incestuous... Oh no,
1: whatever could be worse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh dang.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting angle there of like, you know, uh, the queen has to keep certain aspects of scientific research kept under tight wraps. Because if if, you know, the scientific offices discovered weaponized smallpox, it could, you know, or uh oh, it'sn't bloodborne. Weaponized uh, celiac disease or something, they could bring down the entire ability. And so Periodically the scientists in the hospitals are taken out and shot or something like that
0: to maintain oh, status quo. Mm. Uh-huh. Oh man. I'm entirely satisfied with this scenario that we've created. Uh how about y'all? Because I'm like, I don't I don't want to add any more to this. I feel like we're we hit the peak so far.
2: Yeah, yeah. it's good to go.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Well, I suppose it's now time to move on to our pentultimate moment, I guess, right? Yeah, kind of. Anyway, so we're moving on to the rapid fire round. Uh, Sam, my wife wants to know, is cereal a soup? Is cereal a
1: soup? Uh, Structurally, yes. Content-wise, no.
0: All right. And what have you been playing recently? Like
1: uh, anything or in terms of thing, uh, Elden Ring. Oh, yeah.
0: Hell yeah, Elden Ring.
1: That and uh, Crusader
0: Kings. Uh, three, one, two? Three, yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us about your favorite or most memorable character death.
1: Ooh, uh, that's a good question. My character's dying or characters dying in general? Yes. Um, my own individual favorite character death probably would be, I uh, had a, a noble who made a deal with a devil and slowly descended into evil and madness, lost both of his eyes, one to a necromancer and one to his own ritual, Uh, rapidly aged 50 years, grew horns out of his head, tattooed himself with various sort of infernal markings, and eventually became fully possessed and was slaughtered by his own party.
0: Uh, uh, Typical uh, mobile. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) That actually sounds like an amazing descent into madness. Oh, it was
1: fantastic. It was great.
0: Yeah. All right, and Daniel and Courtney, hit them with your rapid-fire questions.
2: If you could only play one RPG system
1: for the rest of your life, which one would you choose I wish to be tortured? The one I keep in a Google Doc and keep changing whatever I want. That is not <laughs> your own? Uh, that you? is not my own? The Vanilla Game by Jared Singler. The Vanilla Game,
0: interesting. <laughs> uh, Courtney?
3: So based on your Twitter handle and your drive-through RPG account, you seem to like goats a lot. Why is that? <laughs>
1: Um, when I was, I was a freshman in undergrad and, uh, Lionhead Studios, Peter Molyneux Studio had mm-hmm. just folded. And so of my friends joked that we were going to start one called Sheep's Head. And then <laughs> we re- did pick different farm animals. And so there was Sheep's Head, Pig's Head, and Goat's Head. And I'm going to kept the name. <laughs> uh,
3: okay. I gotcha. We also have a question from a patron, Diplo who asks, uh, what RPG podcasts do you enjoy, if any?
1: Oh, my favorite is Trying to Be Kind. It's... Like, uh, it's really the only, at least the only good RPG academic podcast run by three disillusioned ex-academics <laughs> who read through various sort of academic RPG texts and largely dismantle them and destroy them.
3: It's great. Interesting.
0: I hadn't heard about that one. I'll check it out. I haven't either, and I'm instantly mm-hmm. going to download mm-hmm. and listen to that because that sounds very good. Yeah.
3: All
0: right, Sam, uh, name someone who is not yourself who you'd love to give a shout out to.
1: Uh, Luke Gearing. He's a designer that I admire a lot. Uh, he's got a long-running Viking hex crawl project called Wolves Upon the Coast. It's super good. It grows every, every few months. It's amazing. It's the best hex crawl I've ever made.
0: Wow. That is mm. high praise. And then finally, Sam, tell people where we can find you and your work. Easiest place to find me
1: is on Twitter, at Head of the Goat. It's all uh, one, one long word um, in the handle. Um, my work is scattered around and my website is now about a year and a half out of date. <laughs> um, you can find my work on itch.io. Uh, that's sam.sorenson.itch.io. Uh, you can find it on drive through at the goat's head. You can find it on various shadowy discord servers and itch alts that I'm not going to list here, but largely if you hang on on, if you, if you check my Twitter, yeah, I have links to most of them in most
0: convenient places. Fantastic. Sam Sorensen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah,
1: thank you for having me. It's been a great time.
0: And we're back. So, I had an absolute blast talking to Sam. And Daniel, this is just someone you ran into at a wedding? <laughs>
2: no. So, when we were looking for guests a long time ago, um a friend, so my wife's friend who is his 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 sister mentioned as I said in the episode um that she she knew of someone that had something to do with games She has not, no idea what we do or what rpgs are and so I, I was like okay well let's try and get him make this happen but the problem with his sister is that she does not answer texts she doesn't follow up with emails <laughs> the only way you can talk to her is if she's physically in front of you she has the temperament of baby from friends like literally that's who she is i so don't I finally, know what that
0: means daniel i've never seen friends she's very
2: wacky um To be fair, his sister's like a nuclear physicist, but she's a very wacky kind of character. That's what Phoebe is. But anyway, so I I finally (laughs) met him at a wedding for one of our mutual friends. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, this guy's like studying RPGs. And he's like totally in the scene. He's making them. and I'm like, we definitely need to talk. So that's how I ran into it.
0: And it obviously worked out pretty well. I think that we had a fruitful, interesting conversation. Man, there's so much there. I, I say this often, but I really do feel like we could have went another hour just oh, yeah. talking to, to Sam about, I don't know, whatever. Oh, easily, you know yeah. Also, can we talk about how fucking weird and gross that gothic horror setting ended up being? Like, damn. <laughs>
3: that's,
2: that's
0: I, I, I was a fan. I thought Obviously, was- you were a <laughs> fan, She's like,
3: Courtney. It's great for me.
0: I love it. <laughs> yeah. <point>. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney's over here like, uh, yes, tell me uh, more. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah,
3: and I feel like I probably could have nerded out a lot more with him on graphic design too, but I didn't want to turn this into like the font podcast. So
0: yeah, you you (laughs) go to the Twitch and do that, Courtney. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Oh, we should start a a podcast called the font podcast. I would listen to that. Do you, you do font pairing? Wait, like wait,
0: not? why, why, why can't we call like Hell Yeah Vedica or something like? Oh, that? Hell yeah, oh, Hell Yeah I
2: like that. Yeah, yes. you're
0: welcome. I'm oh <laughs> royalty. That is a lot of
2: money. You gotta, you gotta go do that immediately. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not gonna do that. Get out of here. No, no Courtney, you gotta go. Oh, go
3: and do it. Oh God. <laughs> I'm curious. Are there? Podcasts about fonts. There must there's be. There's
2: gotta be. Could you imagine a podcast? Okay, this is Sudulia a far field. A, a font podcast where you're given two random fonts as a pairing, and you have to do a design with them on the spot. Oh man, that wouldn't work as a podcast, but as a video, as, as a as like show. a Twitch
3: stream. Yeah. Yes, there's wow. your there's
2: your thing. There's
0: your gimmick. Jesus, and that's gonna do it for this episode <laughs> of World Field with us. <laughs> Uh, remember that if you want us to build your world you can always go to our website worldbuildwithus.com click the link follow the instructions all that good stuff and within a reasonable amount of time we'll be building your world if you want to follow us on social media we're over on twitter at let's world build if you want to come join our discord and chat with us more directly there's a link for that in the description and the website And of course, if you're feeling particularly generous, you can always give us money over on Patreon, where you get access to sweet, sweet patron-only goodies. With all of that out of the way, that's going to do it for this episode of World Build with us. Remember that we love you very much, and we're going to get through this together until next week.